0: Good morning and welcome to St. Paul's. I invite you to pray with me. Father, I ask that you overshadow us now with your spirit, that it might be unto us according to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we launch our new summer teaching series, which we are calling Summer Stories, Like you, we've been following the news and we knew that we were expecting a summer out of doors, a summer gathering with friends that we haven't seen in a long time around patios, barbecues, picnic tables, fire pits, the dock, and hearing stories of how the last year and change has gone for them. That made us think of the parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus would have told his friends and his followers as they were passing time in the field or or sitting around and we thought that that would be a good way to pass the summer. And so today I'm going to talk about the story we just heard. But before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about parables, since we're going to be hearing a lot of them this summer, and about how we can come to them. A parable in the Bible is a particular kind of teaching through story. It's a parable, it comes from a Greek word, which means to cast alongside. The idea is the story is placed next to reality so that you can compare them. And the story shows you something about reality, about life that you didn't see before. Scripture tells us that Jesus taught in parables, and his parables take several forms. One is a simple metaphor or an illustration. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's something small that gets real big. Another kind of parable is allegory. It's a story where each detail stands for something else. And this kind of parable is a a way of telling a secret message. Because you can only understand the story if you know what each part represents. So and a story might be about a king and his servants, and the king is God, and the servants are God's people, and, and that's the way to interpret it. But this summer, we're primarily, primarily focusing on a third kind of parable. The stories where the drama of the narrative paints a picture of something that Jesus wants us to see. And that's the kind of parable we heard today. It's maybe Jesus' most famous parable, popularly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Well, obviously, when you're telling stories that are for teaching, not entertainment, this isn't binging Tiger King, a primary question is, what does this mean? What do these stories mean? Mark Allen Powell, who's a literary critic specializing in biblical studies, did a fascinating experiment about the meaning of the story that we actually just heard. He took a group of seminarians, people studying for the ministry, in the United States and in Russia. And he had them read the parable of the prodigal son and then retell it in their own words. And what he wanted to see was what details from the original text would make it into the retelling when they tried to remember it as close to the original as they could. Well, one detail in the story is that the younger brother squanders his wealth in, as our translation has it, wild living. And in the retelling, 100% of the Americans remembered that. They remembered to include that, that he squandered his wealth. But just 34% of Russians included that in their story, in their retelling of it. And Powell asked them why, and they said, well, wasting money, that just made him poor like everybody else who didn't have an inheritance to begin with. His problem was the foolishness of seeking to be self-sufficient in the first place, of monetizing a family relationship that would have sustained him indefinitely, and turning it into something that could be squandered. Another detail of the story is is the famine. If you look at the original text, it's then there was a famine and then he began to be in need. But only 6% of Americans remembered the famine when they were retelling the prodigal son. By contrast, 84% of the Russians remembered the famine because these were Russians in St. Petersburg. Where within the living memory of their grandparents, 670,000 people had died of starvation when the city was under siege by the Germans in World War II. Hunger and its memory is a living reality in St. Petersburg. So you ask the question why does the younger brother wind up starving in the pig pen? And the American version is because he sinfully wasted his money. And the Russian version is because he was foolish and there was a famine. And then, to add just out a curveball, Powell did this experiment with a group of Tanzanian seminarians, and 80% of them said he was hungry because nobody gave him anything to eat. It's right there in verse 16. I don't know if you even noticed it. Maybe it seems like an extraneous detail to us. He was hungry, and nobody would give him anything. But it's not an extraneous detail in Tanzania where this is a parable about the difference between the generosity of the father's house and the selfishness of the far country. So, is this a story about moral guilt? Or is this a story about foolishness and its circumstance? Or is this a story about hospitality and its opposite? Yes. What does a story mean? Well, a story is going to mean different things to different people in different times and places. And the timelessness of Jesus' story is that no matter when they're told or to whom they're told, they land and they speak to that context. Now, the story we heard this morning is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, but the name is a way of defining its meaning, right? Like it's the story about the prodigal son. So throughout this series, we're going to try to avoid the popular names because stories can't be reduced to their meaning. Like if a friend asked you to go to a movie, just sit with that for a second, a friend going to a movie with a friend. If a friend asked you to go, for a, go to a movie, you wouldn't say, oh no, I don't need to go, I already know the meaning of that movie. Or if someone says, you're not going to believe what my roommate did. It's so crazy. You don't cut them off and say, that's all right. I get the point. Your roommate's crazy. I don't need to hear the story. Scripture says that Jesus taught in parables to disguise the truth, to confuse people. Because these aren't about doctrine that you can summarize, put in bullet points, and file away. Stories require you to engage with Jesus through the Holy Spirit and be transformed by his teaching. So our job this summer is to let the parables live as stories that show us something new about what it means to live in Toronto in the summer of 2021 as followers of Jesus. So with that then, what does this parable, I'll call it the one with the welcome home party, what does it mean for us? Well, for all that I just went on about the timelessness of the story, it's still helpful to have a bit of background as to the cultural context in which Jesus told this parable, because that matters to how we hear it. And chief among our concerns is inheritance law. In a nutshell, in Jesus' day, a father's wealth was passed to his sons on his death. And the firstborn son got a double share. So in this case, two brothers, the first brother gets two-thirds, the younger brother gets one-third. Think of it as a uh, father has two town, uh, three townhouses that he rents out for income. The older brother would get two, the younger brother get one. But there was a provision in the law that would allow the father to give the inheritance before his death. And in that case, he would deed the property over to his sons, but he would retain the revenue. We're talking about fields here. But in our Toronto metaphor, which is not agricultural, say the father deeds over the townhouses to his sons, they stay on as building managers, and the father continues to receive the rental income until his death. Well, what's happening here in this story is the most extreme option, and it's the younger brother saying, I want want my share of the inheritance, and I I want to liquidate it no more rental income, I just want to take the capital and go. He's in effect saying, it's as if you're dead to me, I I, I want to be on my own. And so he does that, and he now has his inheritance in liquid movable assets, this flush bank account, nothing holding him back, and he heads out and he spends his money until there's nothing left, and then there's a famine, and then desperation, and we land at this final cultural detail, he has to become a pig keeper. In Jesus' Jewish context where pigs were despised, this is cultural rock bottom. And that detail of craving the pig's food, of being that hungry, you're talking about carob pods here. They're barely edible to human beings. That's like getting to rock bottom and then digging a few inches further down. Well, the rest of the story makes a bit more universal sense. He's in these dire straits and he comes to his senses. Another translation has he came to himself. It's that epiphany moment. Like, what am I doing? Who am I? And he remembers, yeah, my father's workers are well provided for. He's lost his privilege as a son, but maybe he can be hired back on. He even rehearses a little speech I'm, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but will you make me a servant? And so he goes. Now his father sees him a long way off and he runs to meet him. Culturally, this would have been shocking. A respected head of a house wouldn't have run, wouldn't have shown his legs by pulling up his robe and running down the road. It's not dignified. But dignity isn't the father's chief concern here. He catches him in a bear hug. He smothers him and kisses. The son starts his speech. Father, I'm not wor- worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts him and he, he calls for a party. He says, give him good clothes. Give him a ring. Give him shoes. He tells the servants to pull out all the stops. The son of mine was dead. Is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. The story could end there. That'd be a fine ending. But it doesn't. The older brother's out in the fields. He hears the celebration. He sends a servant to see what's going on. Here's the news. Your brother's back. And he's furious. He won't go in. And then just like with the younger brother, the father goes out to meet the son. And the older brother tears into his dad. And the dad says, your brother's back. We had to celebrate. So what are we to make of this? As I said, there's no one right meaning. So I'll tell you how this story landed on me. A meaning of the story. Both brothers think that having the relationship is conditional on them following the rules. That's where this landed on me. That both brothers think that having their relationship as sons and as brothers is conditional on them following the rules. So the younger one knows he's broken the rules. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be your servant. He's broken the rules of how a son is supposed to be with his father, so he has to be a servant. That's what he thinks. His sonship is gone. And the older one actually thinks the same thing, not just about his brother, about himself. He admits it when he talks to his father. He says, for years I've slaved for you. The son's admitting that he sees himself, not as a son, but as a servant. The work that the younger son came prepared to ask for, the older sees himself as having been doing all these years, in his own mind, he's been earning his sonship through his service. And so it's no surprise either that he thinks that his brother breaking the rules means that they're not brothers anymore. He refers to his brother as your son. Your son. This is how parents talk when one's in trouble. Like your kid drew on the walls, not my brother. And the father has to correct him. He said, no, your brother is back. Both brothers think that having the relationship is conditional on following the rules. Which means that to them, the rules of behavior are more fundamental than the relationship. It's like a trope from the movies. We, we can all picture this. You're dead to me. You're no son of mine because someone crossed a line. And now they don't get that anymore. But the father's behavior, it contradicts them. The father, in effect, says... The relationship is deeper than the rules. You can break the rules, but you don't get to break this relationship. It's not up to you. He goes to them. Now, does the father run down the road to greet every stranger that he sees? No, he runs to his son. And some commentaries say, oh, well, you know, the son was coming back properly penitent, and so that's why. But no, the father sees him and starts running. He embraces him. He kisses him before the son can get a word in edgewise. Father doesn't know why the son's coming back. The father runs to greet him. And when his son starts his speech, he doesn't even let him get to the part where he's asking for work.
1: He cuts him off. He calls for a party. In the same way, he goes to the elder son. The elder son has sent a
0: servant to find out what the hubbub is about from the field to the house. And the father goes from the house to the field to the elder son. the son tears into him. I've been slaving for you. And the father says, you've been working for something that's been yours all along. And so here's the climax of the story, which hangs on a welcome home party. A father had two sons But neither of them really knew it. And one of them went away, and when he got back, he got a party.
1: And the other one never left. But when the party started in his own house, he refused to go. It's the welcome home party that makes this story wild.
0: Because that's what would have scandalized the Pharisees. That's, that's where this parable comes from. With people sniping at Jesus saying like, oh, look who he hangs out with, right? The first few verses from our reading. Like they would have been okay with a repentant sinner as long as it fit their script. If the Pharisees are telling this parable, they want the younger brother punished. Maybe he has to like earn his way back into the good graces of the family. The moral of their parable is that you get the relationship if you follow the rules. Like, if the dad's a Pharisee, he's not running to greet his son. Like, maybe he receives his his son grandly, mercifully. Maybe he hires him on. But the price of the son getting to come back is that he has to keep on showing that he knows he doesn't deserve to be there. You know somebody like this. Maybe you are somebody like this. Like, someone does something wrong and you say, it's okay, but you keep punishing them emotionally inwardly or outwardly exacting a price from them. You keep on reminding them of what they've done wrong. I've gotten this kind of treatment, and I'm not proud to say that I've given it. There's, there's part of me that wants to give this kind of treatment to extract every last emotional nickel that I feel like I'm owed. But Jesus says, this isn't how God is with sinners. That means that this isn't how God is with us. And when we who have in our sin withdrawn ourselves from love, or, uh, withdrawn ourselves from God's love, when we return there's a party. There's a party. So Jesus and the Pharisees here is like a soldier returning home from a tour of duty and embracing his wife and his kids for the first time in like a year. And the neighbors are standing around celebrating. And some aunt is standing in the corner like, maybe I'll finally pay that parking ticket now. Like, Read the room, midge. Not the time or the place to be scrupulous or miserly. Just celebrate. This is what's most important. That's how God does it. What this parable means is that true religion isn't just about restoring balance. Christianity isn't a spiritual take a penny, leave a penny tray. The good news of Jesus is not simply that what was lost is now found, but that what has been found is now celebrated. It's about taking something that is broken and fixing it in a way that somehow it's even more beautiful than the original. Elsewhere, Scripture says that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. See the details about get my son the best robe, ring, shoes. These are all details that say you are home. It belongs to you. And you belong here. This is not a, oh, hey, never thought we'd see you again. Yeah, okay, I guess you can crash on the couch. I mean, you know that tone of voice, right? This is a man who was starving who had sold all he had in order to eat who discovers
1: his needs supplied to overflowing parable of the prodigal son the one with the welcome home party do you know what
0: prodigal means I asked because I didn't for like an embarrassingly long time. I was always confused because prodigal sounded like prodigy, and prodigies are good, and I never bothered to look it up. But because of this story, we use prodigal as repentant, but that's actually not at all what it means. Prodigal refers to the lifestyle that the son lives, the younger son lives in verse 13. Wild in our translation, wasteful, dissolute other translations, all terms that are blameworthy. But what's interesting is that in Eastern translations, Syriac Arabic, This has historically been translated as luxurious, which is actually much closer to the Latin original for prodigal, prodigus, which means lavish. Prodigal doesn't mean a repentant sinner, it means lavish. The son was lavish. But that means that calling it the parable of the prodigal son is missing the point, because the lavishness of the son's lifestyle, which bankrupts him, is actually nothing compared to the lavishness of the father's love, which restores him. This is the parable of the prodigal father. The father whose lavish love wasn't constrained by the demands of dignity. Whose love wasn't a reward for obeying the rules. Whose love wasn't doled out in these stupid, begrudging little
1: spoonfuls, but was poured out like Niagara Falls into an empty gallon jug. So maybe you're that younger brother. And spiritually, you're
0: starving in the far country. You feel alone and hungry and unworthy and trapped. And you don't have any money, never mind why, who cares? And you've endured a famine and nobody will help you out. I'm guessing there's somebody listening who doesn't think that they deserve a party
1: because of what you've done or who you are. Come home. Come home, because there is a God who hasn't just
0: run to greet you like the father in this story. I told you it wasn't an allegory, but who has actually come to find you where you are right now without you moving a muscle by sending his son Jesus, who gave up the honor of heaven for the indignities of this life. This God says, you are my child, and I love you. This God says, I will restore what you have lost and then some, and the table set. The band's tuned and ready to go. Come home. If this is you, pray with me. Father in
1: heaven, I want to come home. But to be honest, I think this is even more a parable for the older brothers among us. Little rule followers
0: like me. Because that's how it ends. The father saying, all I have is yours, but we have to celebrate because your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now is found. And the parable ends like that, awaiting the older brother's reply. And it's been waiting his reply for 2,000 years, just hanging out there. So if that's you, and you're standing in a dark, cold field, and there's light and music and dancing in the distance in your house, And your father is standing there saying, come in, come in. And the only thing stopping you from joining the party in your house is you. It's the fact that your life is built around the idea that people should get what they deserve. And deep down, you can't handle the fact that God's not like that. And going to the party that your brother certainly doesn't deserve would mean admitting that you don't deserve a party either. It would mean admitting that you have what you have and you are what you are, not because you are good or because you have earned it or because you deserve it, but because you are loved. And if everything you are proud of, everything was stripped from you and you had nothing left, there would still be a party for you too because
1: you are are loved So what are you going to do